I hope that you caught uh, the words faith and hope. And I'm hoping I can get this loose. There we go. Because that's what we're going to talk about today. What do we believe in? What and who do we believe? Before we start, I need to share with you, uh, first of all, my name is Don Vogel. I'm one of the elders here. And my function this week is to, I am the not Pastor Brett. A few times a year, we give Pastor Brett a, a week off. And someone has to preach that's not Pastor Brett. So... If this doesn't go well, just remember, I'm the not Pastor Brett. I had a dream about two and a half, three weeks ago. It's pretty vivid. And don't get nervous. I'm not telling you that God spoke to me in a dream, and this is what I'm telling you. But the dream was kind of unusual. It was kind of vivid. I was sitting down in front preparing to come up to preach. You know, when I don't do this every week, by all means, and so we kind of anticipate this for some time, and we have some time to think about it and consider. But anyway, in my dream, I was sitting in the front row. When I got up and came up here, the pulpit was gone, and all my notes were gone. Well, okay. The next thing, when I turned and I looked about five or six rows back, there was a plywood partition that had been put up across the entire sanctuary, the auditorium. And I asked someone, I said, so what is the plywood partition? And someone answered and said, well, the people that are behind that are the ones that just don't want to hear you. (laughs) Now, I don't think that dream came from the Lord. (laughs) I think that probably came more from my nervous brain. But God has given me something I want to share this morning. So let's go to him and ask him to be made known this morning. Heavenly Father, commit this time to you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And Lord, as we look into your word, I pray, Father, that the things that you've laid on my heart would be clear, that I would communicate what you want me to. Lord, I pray that I would not get in the way. Forgive my sin. Lord, I want to do this with a clear heart. So, Father, we commit this hour to you. And I pray that you would bless it, that you would use it in Jesus' name. Now, I have my notes, so I I double-checked before I came up. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. If you have your Bibles, we're going to, we're going to do a couple of things today. <clears throat> number one, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to send you home with a homework assignment. Because I've got a number of passages of Scripture that if we just really took time to do that, you wouldn't have dinner until about 2.30, 3 o'clock this afternoon, and I know you don't want to do that. <clears throat> but in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, Now faith is being sure... Of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Have you got that? 
That's kind of one of those passages of, of Scripture we need to read like two or three times <laughs> to process what he's saying. But when we're talking about faith, we're talking about trust, and we're talking about things that we can be certain of, for the hopes that we have. And I want to ask you some questions, and these are questions you only answer to yourself. I would never ask these and expect an answer to come back to me. What do you hope for? You ever think about that? What do you hope for? Now, I was really young. You kind of hope for things like you might want to have a new car someday or you hope to have when you're really young. I hope to have a pretty wife someday and good job and all those kind of things. What do I hope for? What hope do I have that is certain? As I've gotten older, I define that differently. What hope do I have that I am certain of? A hope that I have that I know will happen and I'm looking forward to it. How strong is your faith? Those kind of go together, do they not? How strong is your... What do you put your faith in? Who do you put your faith in? Who do you trust Who is the person, the human being in your life that you trust the most? Just think about that for a moment. Who is the one person that you trust the absolutely the most? You have full trust in them. My hunch is it's a person that you know very well. You have a relationship with them that's pretty deep. They're important. And you care for that relationship. And you trust them. And they trust you. And you'd never violate that. Common sense and hope and trust. These are things that all kind of mix around. How do I process all of this? Oswald Chambers had some thoughts on this. Faith in opposition to common sense is mistaken enthusiasm. Common sense in opposition to faith is mistaken reliance on reason as the basis for truth. The life of faith brings these two into proper perspective. And we'll leave that up there for a little while, because if you're like me, I had to read that through three or four times. Because how does all that fit? How much faith do I have? What's my faith in? I have to share with you. When I was in the Navy, I did two terms in Vietnam. I was on a small boat. That was kind of an exciting time in my life. My relationship with God became very close. I learned how to have faith. My faith was daily, was hourly. Uh, When I came back, from the Navy, a gentleman by the name of Bill Stevens, who was one of the pillars of this church for many, many years, was teaching a class on conversational prayer. And he asked me, he said, are you going to come to my class? And I said, you know, Bill, man, I love you to death, but conversational prayer is not the one I need. I I got pretty good at that. (laughs) I got pretty good at that. A few years after I got out of the Navy, came back, had a good job, 
pretty wife, two kids, nice house, pretty new car, and a cocker spaniel. Life was pretty good. And one day I became a little convicted. Actually, I became a lot convicted. My faith wasn't as strong as it had been. My faith had waned because it was pretty good. Life was pretty good. So one day I prayed. I said, Lord, I need to trust you more. Do in my life what it will take to stretch my faith. Now, when I ended that prayer, I was kind of like, are you sure you really wanted to do that? Well, I came home and I told my wife, because things that affect me affect her. I said, hon, here's what I've been feeling, and here's what I prayed. Here's what I asked for. She wasn't really excited. <clears throat> her answer was, uh, oh, so what does that mean? I said, well, there's the faith part. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that means. And I would have you here till five o'clock if I told you what that all meant. What are we certain of? Who's the most trusted person? What is the thing that I know? What is, what is my faith founded on? Is it just blind? No. Blind faith is, as Oswald Chambers says, it's in opposition to common sense. So when we go to Hebrews chapter 11, here's your first homework assignment. <clears throat> when you get home later today or this week, I want you to read that entire chapter. Because there's a gentleman in there who is mentioned more than any other. That's kind of the hall of fame for faith. Hebrews 11. The man Abraham. Abraham is talked about in Hebrews chapter 11 more than any other. And we kind of know the story of Abraham. And we have a, you know, we're at an advantage. Those of us who have been in the church for a lot of years, and many of you have, we kind of know the story. We know how the story ends. We know how Abraham was a great man of faith. But this morning, I want to take a look at the process that it took Abraham to get to where he had this great faith. In Hebrews chapter 12, God calls Abraham. Now, I'm going to kind of do a 50,000-foot flyover here through Genesis. You can look along if you'd like. Uh, you have maybe headers in your Bible. God gives a promise to Abram. In chapter 12 of Genesis, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, can you imagine with me for a minute if God had told you that? I'll tell you my thought was, <laughs> my ticket's punched. Man, this is cool. You realize people that curse me are going to be cursed. The people that bless me are going to be blessed. God 
is going to make me great? My name is going to be great? Well, Abraham left as the Lord had told him. And he traveled. This man of faith, God had given him a promise. So he had a promise that he could take, in modern vernacular, to the bank. Who better to make a promise than God? (laughs) And God gives him this information. So let's kind of see how Abram does. Abram travels to the new land. Abram 10, Abram, in verses 12, uh, excuse me, verses 10 to 16. Now there was a famine in the land of, of chapter 12 of Genesis. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, Now remember the promise that God gave to Abram. He should be pretty confident in that, would you not think? Wherever he goes, his name is going to be great. God's going to bless the people that bless him. God is going to curse the people that that curse him. God's going to protect him. He's going to make him a great nation. He's got all this. This is God has promised all this stuff. So how does Abraham react? Abram, excuse me. I know, he says to Sarai, in verse 11, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Verse 14, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. They treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, maid servants, and camels. Now, If you're like me, you're thinking, Abram, what is that? (laughs) You just lied to him. You know, God had given him a promise. Was Abraham, could Abraham be sure of that promise? No, we would say, yeah. But when it came to a situation in his life that was life and death, God had given the promise, but Abram figured, I better fill in the blanks a little bit here. (laughs) Maybe God doesn't have all the details taken care of. And he says to Sarai, his wife, you're a beautiful lady. Now, the Egyptians weren't without morals at all. They would at least kill Abram before they took his wife. (laughs) However, he says, tell them you're my sister. Now, interestingly enough, Abram and Sarai were of the same family. They had the same father, but not the same mother. So they were sort of related. They were sort of brother and sister. So how much does God deal in sort of true? Well, if we think about God's promise to Abram, we think about what he says, Abram, the man of faith. In verse 17, we find out what God thought of this. But the Lord inflicted. (laughs) 
serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on the way with his wife and everything he had. Now, Abram had gained quite a bit of wealth while he was in Egypt, did he not? So in a kind of sort of way, I guess we could say that God blessed Abraham, Abram, excuse me, I keep making that mistake. His name hasn't been changed yet here. <clears throat> he gains wealth. But he kind of twisted what God's real plan was. We, I would have to conclude, when Abram got there, he was fearful. He feared for his life. Abram tells a half-truth to gain deliverance from the situation in Egypt. Now, in Genesis chapter 13, God promises even more. He makes another promise to him. He tells him that the land that he, everything that he can see is going to be his. He is going to have an inheritance. He tells Abram that he will have offspring that will be beyond number. This guy is going to have a family. He's going to have a, there are generations, the world, the, the entire earth is going to be blessed through him. In chapter 15 of Genesis, and I told you this is going to be 50,000 feet. God covenants with Abraham. I am your shield. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, and this is chapter 15, verse 2, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram had had no children. Sarai was barren. As a matter of fact, the fact that she was barren was even mentioned in the genealogy of Abram and his family. Abram's confused. But in verse 6, he says, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. He said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave you this land. But Abram said, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer. And there's a story, you need to read that later. But God makes a promise to Abraham, and what's Abraham's response? How do I know? <laughs> Kind of an unusual response, maybe the response I might have. Because my faith's not complete yet. Because I'm human. Because I'm going by what I see. And so far it's been a little bit bumpy. God promises Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham. God repeats his promise. Abraham believes God. But asks the question, how can I know? Well, in chapter 16, there's the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Abram had been told that he was going to have an inheritance. He's going to have a large family. But at this time, Sarai is somewhere north of 75 to 80 years old. Now, if you do the math on that, <laughs> this promise is looking a little obscure, is it not? How is that going to work? Well, you know the story as well as I do that Abram and Sarai make a plan. 
See, God made the promise, but then they're thinking, okay, maybe he didn't have all these details worked out either. So we can help. So by the handmaiden Hagar, Abram has a son named Ishmael. God says, no, that's not what I meant. That's not the promise. That is not the fulfillment of the promise. And God says, look, this is my promise to you, Abram. Are you going to have the faith? Now, in chapter 18, three visitors come to visit Abram and Sarai. And by this time, Abram had become Abraham. God changed his name. See, there's a process here. In chapter 17, God makes a covenant with him. Verse 15, God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarah. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. God is very specific. This is how this is going to work. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people, kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So Abram has a thought. Now, wait a minute. I've got this son Ishmael. Lord, what about him? He's my son. You said you were going to bless me with lots of, lots of kids. What about him? God says, no, that wasn't the promise. That's the detail for me, not for you. But God says, wait, I will bless him. I will establish a, co- a covenant with him. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. His descendants after him, as for Ishmael, I have heard, I have heard your cry. I will surely bless him and I will surely make him fruitful. Is Abraham and Sarah, are they trusting God yet? Sort (laughs) of. Have they seen God work? Yes, they have, very definitely. But they're in the middle of God's plan, and they don't see the end. (laughs) They're not sure how all these things are working out. And we know that in chapter 18, three visitors come to pay a visit to Abraham and Sarah. The Lord appeared in, in chapter 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of the Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent. In the heat of the day, Abraham looked up and saw three men. Now, I want to skip down to uh, verse 10 of chapter 18. One of the men said that this is the Lord speaking. These were angels. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which is behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed. 
to herself, as she thought, And after I am worn out and my master is old, I will now have this pleasure. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now that's a rhetorical question, is it not? But it's a reminder to her, I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Now this is interesting. Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, now this is the angel speaking from God. Yes, you did laugh. Hmm. That's a rebuke, is it not? You're not believing. You're not believing yet. Where is your faith? You're only 90 years old. (laughs) And your husband is 100? Is that a problem for God? We laugh because, whoa, yeah, you bet. Now, if we flip over to chapter 20, we find out Abraham gets into another scrape. He runs into a man named Abimelech. Now, think about it. I want you to consider all the things that have happened up until now. Chapter 20, now Abraham moved on from there into a region of the Negev and lived with Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. So Abraham and Sarah end up in another jam with the Abimelech, who is an ungodly man. And they're complete, wait a minute, they're incomplete faith. He says, we're going to have to do this again, Sarah. Tell them you're my sister. Now, I've been married for 55 years, coming in June. I double-checked that with my wife this morning to make sure I'm right on the number. You young guys that have just gotten married or only been married a few years, I'm going to give you a little marital advice. Learn to read the looks. There's the look that says, I love you so much. I'm so glad that I married you. Then there's a look that sometimes when I come home and say, you know, let's do this. And she goes, okay. Then there's a time I say, well, I did this or I bought this. And she goes, really? Now, i got to tell you, though, there's a stage three here. There's the really with the deep exhale. Really? (sighs) Guys, don't try to defend that one. You're only going to dig the hole deeper. I have to believe the second time that Abraham says to Sarah, tell him you're my, my sister. I, I got to believe he got the deep exhale. <sighs> really? Again? That's easy for you. I got to go to Abimelech's house. It's not a good thing. Well, an interesting thing happens. Now, you remember when we read, but God intervened in Egypt? Verse 3 of chapter 20, but God. 
came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know. You did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife. He is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. From time to time, God says something definitive. And Abimelech may not have been a follower of the true God, but he got this message. You touch this lady, you're going to die. Now, the interesting thing to me is, you know, kind of on a side note, this lady's 90 years old and she's still pretty as a picture. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Kind of a cool thought. Abimelech takes her, but God doesn't let him touch her. Because God's got a plan. She's going to have a son. And God has to maintain the integrity of the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. He does that right here. This son that she is going to have is going to be Abraham's son. Let there be no confusion about that. She is the son of Abraham. Now, Abimelech, early the next morning, he summoned all the officials, and when he told them what had happened, they were all afraid. Abraham explains himself, and he says, you know, I was in a jam here. I thought, well, the interesting thing is, I'm going to fast forward here. Abimelech pays him to leave. He gives him lots of stuff. As a matter of fact, he even gives a big, pa- a big cash payout to Sarah. This is for your brother. <laughs> they leave with lots of stuff. Has Abraham, is Abraham's faith mature yet? Well, Isaac is born. Isaac is born. And Abraham sees that. Sarah sees that. And you know, we know the story of how Abraham was tested. But I want to point out one thing, because you remember when the Lord rebuked Sarah? That was kind of a tough thing. She lied. It says, she lied. I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. You ever feel kind of scolded by someone? (laughs) God scolded her. Chapter 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave him the name Isaac. God, as God had commanded him, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, verse 6 of chapter 21, God has brought me what? Laughter. I've asked the question several times, you know, we we're made in the image of God. 
something that some of you that know me will be able to verify this. I like to laugh. It's good for you. What makes God laugh? We don't hear much about his sense of humor, although I think if you look at some of us in his creation, we may see his sense of humor. What makes God laugh? Sarah says it right here. God has brought me laughter. You know what she's saying to us, to you and to me? Do you know how powerful and good God is? You know how gracious he is, how he keeps his promises. How you can have faith with him when he tells me to do something that doesn't seem to make sense. Here's the proof. Laugh with me. Laugh with me. God is good. God is gracious. He's faithful. We can trust him. And then the end of the story for Abram is... Abraham, got to get it, he's got a new name, is when he takes Isaac up and God tells him to sacrifice. If we could be Abraham for just a moment, when God told him to do that, did that make any sense at all? No. That After everything that he had gone through, This son is born. He's the promised one. He is going to establish the nation of Israel, which we know how that works out, where that goes. God God is beginning his plan. He's putting his plan together for how he is going to save mankind. After all of that, sacrifice Isaac. But Abraham goes up there. Could you imagine how the night before went for Abraham? God told him to do it. He made the, the arrangements, and then the next morning he was going to leave. Think he got any sleep that night? See, the one thing I love to do when I look at characters like this, I'd like to put myself there. If I were Abraham, I would not have slept a moment. God, what are you doing? I will do this because you told me to. But God, this doesn't make sense. Are you there? The next day, he takes Isaac. And it's interesting to me here. When he's ready to put the knife to Isaac, God says to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. He says it twice. When's the last time somebody used your name twice? Think about that. That's pretty, that's emphasis. And there's an exclamation point. Abraham, Abraham. Usually when somebody uses my name twice, it's, I've kind of messed up. (laughs) I remember my grandpa, a very godly man. When I was just a little kid, somehow I, one of my memories of him is when he would say, Donnie, Donnie. Not much emphasis on what have you done. (laughs) God uses emphasis here. Don't do this. Now I know that you are trusting me. Now I know that you are trusting me. 
Now, the reason I wanted to go through all of that, very simply, was not to disparage anything that Abraham did. Abraham was a great man. God called him a prophet. His faith was, at the end, was far beyond anything I can even imagine. But you know what? He was human. It took him a while to get there. He went through a lot of stuff to figure out that he could really, really trust God. Really trust. Keep his eyes on God. And trust everything that was happening, even though some of the things in front of him didn't make any sense. A number of years ago, I had a good friend who was <clears throat> was a Green Beret. He actually was he actually trained Army Special Forces. He and I became good friends, and I was talking with him one day about we were sharing our experiences from <clears throat> from uh, Vietnam and. I told him, I said, you know, there's a couple of things that you guys do that always kind of intrigue me. One is jumping out of airplanes. He was a high-altitude jumper. And I thought, pretty neat. I said, the other thing is, <clears throat> when you repel, like when you repel out of a helicopter or you repel down a sheer cliff, I said, that always kind of looked kind of neat to me. Well, one day he called me up. He said, hey, Don, would you really like to repel? said, yeah, I would. I'd like to try that. He said, I got a place. I'll show you. Well, we went to a building. I won't tell you where. It was about five stories, no windows, sheer drop. And we went up on top of the building. He says, here, let me show you how we do this. He had all the gear, put the strap on me, put the buckle, and showed me how to tie the knots. And we had everything all set. And... He said, okay, are you ready to do this? I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he said, okay, we're all set. He said, now the rope that comes down, you hold with your left hand kind of loosely just to guide it. The, the rope that comes around through the loop and underneath you, he said, that's how you control your descent. Well, I was concerned about my descent. <clears throat> He said, just let up on that rope a little bit, and you'll come down. He said, you can control the speed. Okay, no problem. Well, we're between four and five stories up, and he said, okay, <clears throat> now, I want you to turn around and go backwards and stand on the edge. Now, I'm not going to turn around because I don't want to fall over. But I backed up. I was not going to look down. I backed up until I felt my heels come off the edge of the building. And I was looking at him, and he said, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Left hand, guide, right hand speed. Lean back. Okay. He said, there's going to be about two feet of slack... And you lean back and take out all the slack. Now, I have to tell you, the only thing that was more vivid than his voice was my heartbeat. I leaned back. I'm at about a 45-degree angle. And he said, okay, jump. Okay. <clears throat> I never looked down. 
I, I was determined. I am not going to look down because if I look down, I'm done. This is going to be the end of the story. So I started down. First time out, a little bit. Second time out, a little bit. I got to tell you, I didn't look down to the point of when I got to the bottom, I landed flat on my back. Because I wasn't going to look down until I got there. And I laid there. He was up at the top laughing. And he said, you want to do that again? And I said, yeah. The second time was a little bit more fun than the first time. But I have to tell you the faith lesson I learned there. Look at me and lean back. I've got you. Is that not what God did with Abraham? Look at me. Lean back. I've got you. You're still going to have to jump. That's life. You're going to have to find your way to the bottom, and it's going to be exciting. (laughs) But you can have faith in the one you're leaning back and the one who's holding your gear. Finally, and I've overprepared, I won't keep you here till 2 o'clock. I want to go to Genesis 20, or I'm sorry, uh, Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Jesus is in the garden. His disciples are with him. Jesus had taught his disciples to pray. One of the things that they admired about him and they wanted to emulate in his life was the way he prayed. And he taught them how. He gave them the outline. You want to do something kind of fun? In Matthew 6 this week, read Matthew 6 and do an outline of the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Outline it. He shows us how to pray. The order in which we give praise. The order in which we give our requests. <clears throat> the knowledge that we have, the, the rapport that we gain with God. Prayer is also self-judgment. It's a time that we can look in, inside of ourselves and understand who God is, who I am, and where do I fit into his plan. But after the Lord's Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 26, verse 36, Then Jesus went to his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Keep watching. The disciples had seen an awful lot up to this point, had they not? They'd seen Jesus do miracles, forgive sins, raise the dead. Now, this is the night before the greatest event in human history. Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to the cross for every one of us. Going a little farther, verse 39, He fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for an hour? 
Well, the truth of the matter is, they're just like us. They were human. They didn't fully understand, just like Abraham did. When Abraham tried to fill in the blanks, a few of the little things, God had given him the promises. He knew where he was going to end up. He just wasn't sure how he was going to get there. So he kind of filled in. Well, the disciples are tired. It's been a long day. They had had the supper with Jesus the night before. And the events had caught up with him. And they were sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He went away a second time, verse 42, and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Well, watch and pray. How do we do that? Well, one way is we watch and we learn what is taught in God's Word. You know, we look at the life of Abraham, and while we know the end of the story, we know his great faith, I think it's helpful to look at how did he get there. (laughs) Because it was not a smooth road. You know, I look at his disciples. In the garden, is it not significant that the Son of God asked men to be with him? Think about that. Does God want a relationship with us? Are you kidding? The Son of God asked men, spend, be with me. Spend time with me. Watch with me while I pray. You know, one last thing. You know, I have a tendency to tell stories. One last thing that I learned. When I was in basic training in the Navy... One of the things they had to teach us how to do was to stand watch. Well, you had to stand watch. One of the ways that they did it, out behind the barracks, there were three great big, we called them dumpsters. They were garbage bins. We had to go out and stand watch on the garbage bin. Now, they didn't not give us a weapon. They had a wooden rifle. Not a real one, about the size of a baseball bat. A wooden rifle, and we had to stand guard on the garbage bin. Now, I had the mid-watch, which meant midnight to 4 a.m. Now, i got to tell you, at 2 a.m., when you're standing guard over a garbage can, you are thinking, what is this all about? This doesn't make any sense at all. I'm watching a garbage can. About a year later, I was in Vietnam, and one night my boat... We couldn't make it back to our base, and we had to spend the night alongside of a river. We had some Marines with us, and I had a mid-watch. One of the Marines had this little gadget. was an early version of night vision, and there was a big hill about a quarter mile away. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning. I'm staying alert. The Marine says, hey, look at this. Look. And he had this screen, and we could see hot spots, which were people all over this hill. Suddenly, standing watch over a garbage can at boot camp didn't sound so bad. Actually, sounded pretty easy. When I saw what was happening around me, I started assessing. 
okay, how many guys do we have? How much ammunition? How many are we set up here for a defensive position? If the disciples had seen what was going on around them, would they have fallen asleep? No way. They just didn't see it. They didn't see it. And the last thing I'd leave with you, when you see what's going on around you, who do you trust? Who are you putting your faith in? What are you putting your faith in? You see, we have a tendency to put our faith in jobs, people, 401ks, government, all that kind of stuff. If that's what you are keeping watch over, you're guarding the dumpster. You're guarding the dumpster. Because you know what? Jesus says, watch for me coming back. And when I come back, that stuff's all gone. What matters? My relationship with Jesus Christ. Watch him work in your life. Watch him work in the lives of people around you. Watch him work in this body. That's what matters. When we see what's happening all around us, watch Jesus. Watch and pray. Keep watching. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. You are a powerful God. You are the only true God. You are the only one that we can trust. And Lord, we recommit ourselves to that this morning. Thank you for your word, for what it shows us, what it tells us. And Lord, I pray that for each one of us, you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives. Thank you, Lord, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight is growing deeper. I hope you think about a few of the things that God laid on my heart. Have a wonderful day, and may God bless you through the rest of it. Thank you.